The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. I'm not totally convinced of Jeff McDonald's innocence. If he's in fact guilty, then it's an incredible thing. Somehow he's managed to convince himself that he didn't do it, and in the process, convince other people as well. But I don't know. I think there's a residual possibility that he did. But in terms of proving that he did, I don't think the prosecution did that at all. Dr. John Thornton, Forensic Expert. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Tara. And I'm Jill. And I don't know where I am. I don't either. <laughs> uh, 2021 is feeling like 2020, at least for me. But for those of you who are just tuning in, we are a real-life true crime book club turned podcast. And while we do the heavy lifting, we certainly encourage you to read along with us. We like to summarize each book we pull off our Murder Shelf and following along in the author's footsteps and, of course, giving our thoughts and opinions. But you can definitely anticipate three episodes on each book. So that's the first two going through the book, and our third, which we've dubbed Second Cast. And that's where we examine some topics that we didn't get to cover in the first couple of episodes. We hope you are staying safe and healthy, and a big, big thank you for tuning in with us. Definitely. We've missed you guys. So this is our second episode on A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris on the Jeffrey McDonald triple homicide. And the burning question is... Did Jeffrey McDonald kill his family on February 17th, 1970 by stabbing and bludgeoning his wife, Colette, and two daughters, Kimberly and Kristen, to death? How do we decide this based on the evidence we have to examine? Last episode, we said that this case is like a continuum, with Joe McGinnis's book Fatal Vision on one end and Morris's A Wilderness of Air on the other. How true, and it makes us wonder if the truth is somewhere in between, Can both books coming at the case from such widely different directions make valid points? Seems likely, murder bookies, so many questions remain to be answered here. We will bring forth answers and correct misconceptions that have dogged the story for almost 50 years by following the evidence. Sounds simple, right? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. No. Get comfortable. (laughs) Grab your wine. We did have Cab Frank last time, but since it's been a while, we had a little bit of rosé. And then, of course, if you wanted to bring out the pimento cheese and crackers again, get that, and let's get into the rest of the story. But first, an update on the Alyssa Lamb case. I recently attended a virtual conference by the Cyril H. Wecht Institute of Forensic Science and Law at Duquesne University. It was called the Three Zooming Sleuths, right, with Dr. Cyril Wecht, obviously, then Dr. Henry C. Lee, and Dr. Michael Badden. Now, Dr. Lee had a few comments on the Alyssa Lamb case, which we just reviewed in our episode on God at Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Alyssa Lamb by Jake Anderson. If you haven't tuned into these episodes, do not miss them. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm paraphrasing Dr. Lee's comments. His interpretation of the elevator video in which Elisa was pushing multiple floor buttons, he says that was to mask the floors that she was staying on to stay hidden from someone who was probably watching her. Now, Alyssa Lamb then goes on to disappear. The search ensues. Weeks later, the water at the Cecil Hotel becomes discolored and the residents are making complaints. Then, Alyssa's body is found in the water tank on the roof. Now, according to Dr. Lee, that Alyssa Lamb climbed up on the roof, climbed up on top of the water tower, lifted the heavy cover, climbed in, and then managed to shut the heavy cover? I'm quoting him. Almost impossible. And significant to him is that she's found naked. So Dr. Lee feels that since her parents don't wish to pursue this, there's really not much else that can be done. However, he thinks that this case needs additional investigation and study. And there you are, from one of the world's most famous forensic scientists, Dr. Henry Lee, worth the price of admission. I can see it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was, like, riveted to the screen. Mm-hmm. I think my eyes dried out and I had to get the drops because I was just, like, watching his lips moving. That was a Friday night, too, right? It was. A nice Friday night? Mm-hmm. A date night? No, date night. <laughs> Me and Henry Lee. Yeah. So I also want to give a shout out to one of our staunchest murder bookies, Rebecca Ray Catalfo. She has been a super fan and we appreciate her so much. Rebecca, you are just awesome. Thank you for your support your insights, and for being such a great part of the Murder Shelf Book Club. You make all the insane stress and crazy events and the time-consuming work all that is worthwhile. And it's been crazy. Oh, yeah. So thank you sincerely for being there when the walls were closing in, and it really did make a huge difference. And to all our murder bookies, thank you for listening to us and reaching out. It matters. It, it really does. does. It really does. Check in when you can. Yep. Not just on us, but everyone that you care about. So, how are we going to make this all fit into this episode, Jill? <laughs> I, I don't know, but we're gonna we're gonna try. Yep, we are. All right, it's complicated. <laughs> so, a quick recap here because it's been a while. But in our last episode, we left you in 1979 when the jury deliberated for six hours and found Jeffrey McDonald guilty on one count of first degree murder for Kristen, two counts of second degree for Colette and Kimberly. So he was also sentenced that same day with Judge Franklin Dupree giving him three consecutive life sentences. And what it came down to was this. Defense attorney Bernie Siegel put all his eggs in the Helena Stokely basket. And when Judge Dupree threw out all the testimony related to her confessions, the defense was left completely hollowed out. McDonald was convicted. Those four chair legs, those were sawed off, cut off at the knees can make a lot of similes, analogies. I don't know what words are anymore. Well, it fell flat. (laughs) It 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 really did fall flat, yes. So as the newly convicted murderer faced the judge, McDonald said, Sir, I am not guilty. I don't think the court heard all the evidence, and that's all I have to say. And so Jeffrey McDonald began his life in prison, and the defense would start their appeals, and there would be a lot of them. Oh, yes. So what was that? I don't think the court heard all the evidence. Was Jeff correct? Had all the evidence been heard? Errol Morris delves into this question. Was there nothing else that pointed to intruders as Jeff claimed? Did the defense miss evidence? 
The prosecution said there was no evidence of intruders, that the living room was too neat, and the list goes on and on. And if you read the book, you'll know that this is on repeat. All right, Morris went on to interview Dr. John Thornton, an expert in forensics, who had testified for McDonald. Now, Thornton approached the review of evidence not from a position of advocacy. He's not concerned about innocence or guilt. He is coming from a position of what does the evidence tell me? So this is a thoroughly fair-minded guy. Reviewing the case, Thornton walked Morris through the evidence that he had access to as a defense forensic expert for McDonald's trial. So first, it was critical to understand that what you see in TV courtrooms is not reality. So let that go. This isn't law and order. Nope. This isn't a movie. Dun, trials, <laughs> yes, trials are actually really boring. Secondly, there was an incredibly relevant Supreme Court decision from 1963, which was Brady versus Maryland. And now SCOTUS ruled on pretrial discovery, establishing what is now known as the Brady Doctrine. This mandates that the prosecution must turn over all exculpatory evidence to the defendant in a criminal case. Exculpatory evidence is evidence that may exonerate the defendant. And you can see why this is so important in an adversarial judicial system like ours. Mm -hmm. Now, under the federal law, prosecutors are allowed to view evidence as their property, not as community property that they share with the defense, like in a joint custody agreement. And in the McDonald case, the prosecution knew the crime scene had been compromised from the get-go. However, this shouldn't mean a murderer got away with a triple homicide. Of course not, right? Right. Right? Right. We already know the prosecution danced along this fine line of the Brady Doctrine because of the Puritz Memo, which was what the prosecution used to outline what evidence could legally be withheld from the defense. Yeah, that really disturbed me. Yeah. If you recall the ice pick demonstration done by the prosecution to prove that Jeff had stamped Colette through the pajama top, Thornton explains to, to Errol Morris that McDonald stated that the pajamas were pulled over his head with the top stretched out between the intruder and himself, that the stabs were not happening when his arms were in the sleeves, but rather the stabs came through unoccupied fabric. Now, according to Thornton, that is certainly possible. So keep in mind, Thornton was at one point considered for the directorship of the FBI and he loses out to William H. Webster. This guy's no slouch. Mm -hmm. All right, he knows mm -hmm. his stuff. So now the prosecution presents this stabbing reconstruction through FBI forensic expert Paul Strombaugh and the FBI technician Shirley Green's testimony, complete with full-color photos and pins sticking out of pajamas that are on a mannequin, the 50 hams... <laughs> Yes, the 50 hams, which look really impressive, very convincing, especially if you're a juror, you're watching all of this. The hams gets me. That's why I laughed when we first started on this. I, I know. <laughs> now, what was underemphasized was the part of Strombaugh's testimony where he says, well, you know, it could be other ways. There could be some other interpretations. Hole number 17 might be correlated really with hole number three instead of hole number seven. Hold, hold up, prosecution. <laughs> Wait, you mean this whole thing, this whole demonstration might not be accurate? You got it. <laughs> That's pretty much what Strombaugh is saying here. Now, this is a disturbing admission, and it's really quickly passed over by the defense, who does not hammer at this. 
this is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would definitely hammer away at it, right? Yes. They should have. Now, the why is explained by Thornton, who revealed to Morris that he had only been given the typewritten reports on this by the FBI. Stonebaugh's bench notes, taken during the inspection of the evidence itself, had been withheld from the defense. That's wrong, right? I think so. Isn't that like illegal because of the Brady Doctrine, right? Yes, illegal. Yeah, yeah, that's the word, yeah. So after the trial, still bothered by this, Thornton wrote to the FBI Director Webster informing him that, quote, the defense did not have an opportunity to examine Mr. Stombaugh's bench notes until after he had finished his testimony. It was apparent that a number of discrepancies existed between Miss Green's reconstruction and Mr. Stombaugh's original determination of the directionality of the punctures. Of the 13 holes designated, there are six discrepancies with the Shirley Green reconstruction. The reconstruction is not valid. And what does that show you? That's proof that the FBI lab knew. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So now we are obviously really bothered by this. We can talk about this all day, all month, all year, but I think it's time to start the appeals. Yeah. In July 1980 came the first appeal filed in the Fourth Circuit Court challenging the constitutional requirements of a speedy trial. Nine years was simply too long a period from the Army's Article 32 hearing to the grand jury indictment to commencement of the jury trial against McDonald, which violated his constitutional rights. The Fourth Circuit agreed, and McDonald was actually released from prison. And he returned to California to resume his work at St. Mary Medical Center by November. So he's literally out. He's free. Free as a bird. Okay, here we go. Yep. But guess what? Prosecution's upset, and the Kassabs, Colette's parents, are furious. Uh, well, of course they are. Oh, of, absolutely. They think he murdered yeah, their daughter yeah. and grandchildren. And they got away with it now. Yeah. So appealing the ruling, it was kicked back up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which actually only accepts a tiny fraction of cases. About 2.8% are selected for review each year. And they, they took it. On March 31st, 1982, Chief Justice Warren Burger wrote for the majority in this 6-3 decision, quote, Once the charges instituted by the Army were dismissed, McDonald was legally and constitutionally in the same posture as though no charges had been made. He was free to go, continue with his life. The Court of Appeals acknowledged, and McDonald concedes, that the delay between the civilian grand jury indictment and the trial was caused primarily by McDonald's own legal maneuvers. So the Fourth Circuit decision is overturned by the Supreme Court, and McDonald is sent back to jail. To Morris, it seems that the Supreme Court determined that the defense shouldn't have fought for their client's rights, and then these unfortunate delays wouldn't have happened. That makes a lot of sense. What? Yeah. Man, court decisions can be really cold and unfeeling. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I, I guess that is the difference between law and Justice. Yes, there's a huge distinction there. Right. Six months later, Siegel and the rest of McDonald's lawyers have filed another appeal to call out Judge Dupree and his decision to excuse key testimony from those six witnesses that we discussed in episode one of this series. They were the witnesses who heard Helena confess. Mm -hmm. And 
Dupree's reasoning in strict legalese comes from the exception in the hearsay rule, Federal Rules of Evidence 804B, Section 3. You can present secondhand testimony, one, if it's against interest, and two, if it has been corroborated. So to sum up, Helena Stokely's confessions to these witnesses were obviously against her own interest, Mm -hmm. as she's, you know, claiming to have been present at the scene of a homicide. And to add insult to injury on both sides, it didn't apply because Stokely's mind was a poor little pile of mashed potatoes. I keep saying that about my brain, too, this year. Oh, I, I feel it's that mashed potatoes. pandemic brain. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. There's nothing in her brain to corroborate any witness testimony or any claims uh, that she confessed to being present at the McDonald homicides. And the Fourth Circuit Court agreed. She is a drug addict and her brain is mush. Unfortunate for her. Yes. And Jeffrey McDonald. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another important note from this round robin of appeals is that one of the judges, Francis Murnigan Jr., wrote a concurrence where he both agreed and disagreed with the majority opinion. He felt uneasy by the fact that the Stokely evidence was excluded from the trial. And he literally wrote that he believed McDonald would have had a much more fair trial had the evidence been heard. But he was not prepared to find any wrongdoing by the district court. Now, Morris is also quick to point out that almost a decade had gone by and context in the case had been lost. What would seem plausible, meaning a group of drugged, crazed hippies being responsible, was now just laughable. And we were out of the hippie movement, moving into the 80s. Charles Manson had faded away. And certainly that had to be far-fetched. Because, you know, hippies just don't, don't kill people. No, they were love children. Yes. You know, make love, not war. Mm-hmm. Oh, one other little note here, just so it doesn't get lost in the shuffle, because we're going to bop around the timeline a little bit. Just just to make matters worse here, on June 4th, 1984, in the middle of an appeal, anything remaining at 544 Castle Drive, where the murders took place, it's incinerated. Burnt to a crisp. Gone. Poof. Is that normal? During the middle of appeals process? I don't even know. Even after all this time, you think they would have took everything? Put it in a, a storage, box and yeah. store it, right? Yeah. Nope, they burned everything. Mm-hmm. That's bizarre. So, Errol Morris entitles Chapter 40, quote, Absolutely batshit crazy, end quote. That's a good chapter. It's a good chapter. You've got to read the book, guys. Enter Ted Gunderson. Okay, so Gunderson is a special agent in charge of the L.A. office of the FBI. And he was actually in the running to become director. But, you know, that post goes to William Webster, as we mentioned. Yeah, so he was up against John Thornton. Yep, all these guys are familiar with each other, right? However, he retires from the FBI on March uh, 1979, and he starts his own private detective agency. And Jeff McDonald is going to be one of his first clients. So Morris writes Gunderson, and quote, he was... Crazy, self-serving, lost in a fun house of his own contrivance, he's responsible for the further blurring of the lines between fact and fiction, parenthesis, given that the line is blurry to begin with, parenthesis, rather than adding any clarity to the case, end quote. Yeah. Yeah. That shit crazy. (laughs) Good times. 
<laughs> so we are all the way up to 1982, but we are going to now go back a couple of years. Why? Why would we do that? Why would we do that? You know why. Come on. Come on, friggin' Stokely. Oh! Of course. Of course. Why else? So it's like Lizzie in the blue dress. Helena Stokely. It keeps coming We should count how many times Helena Stokely's been brought up in the series versus Lizzie's blue dress. Oh I think that'd gosh. be a good one. Anywho... After McDonald had been sent back to prison, Bernard Siegel quit. He was replaced by Brian O'Neill, who picked up where he left off and began working with Gunderson and Prince Beasley, whom he had hired to work with him and also to manage Helena Stokely. Remember, they did have a relationship. So, why not? O'Neill described him as nuts. Really nuts. And that's a quote. Yeah. Even though Gunderson was a true believer in McDonald's innocence, thankfully we have one of those, he had it in his mind that Stokely and her gang of hippies had been a part of a satanic cult. And he also believed that the government had set up McDonald and this conspiracy rolls all the way up to the top. So again, absolutely batshit crazy. I'm not sure I buy the whole conspiracy thing. Mm-mm. I know you think I'm batshit nuts now. Yeah. All right, so October 24th, 1980, Prince Beasley and Stokely fly to California to take yet another polygraph test. And it was at this time that she once again admits to being in the house when the McDonald family was murdered. How many times? I know. Were these now fabrications of time spent with witnesses who corroborated her confessions, or were these real truths? She did talk more about the broken rocking horse, a detail that only someone familiar with the household would know. Now, the lie detector test was administered by a man named Scott Murrow, and he was going to ask Stokely two sets of questions. The first, her potential involvement in the murders of the McDonald family. Murrow came to the same conclusion that Brizentine had 10 years earlier. She believed in her mind that she was there. The second set of questions showed something else. Now, this is a whole new line of questioning. These questions included, did she know the McDonald family was going to get murdered? Were cult members present? Was the murder of the McDonald family premeditated? All these questions she answered with no. What Morrow saw was deception. But if she was lying, did that mean something more sinister was going on? Was there a plot to kill the McDonald family? Conspiracy. Yeah. Gunderson wanted to squeeze Stokely for all he could get, and he kept pressing her for more information, having more evaluations, more polygraphs. He sees conspiracy everywhere. However, Morris gets the impression from multiple persons involved in this craziness surrounding Stokely that she was certainly highly suggestible. But it's very, very possible that she was actually present. While some details might change, the central theme stays the same. After a few days of intense cajoling, prodding, questioning, Gunderson finally let Stokely go back to North Carolina. But it's not over. There was one more trip to L.A. in May of 1982. Gunderson had convinced Stokely to tell her story on camera for 60 Minutes. Can't put her up on the stand, but we can put her on 60 Minutes. Someone, write write to us about that. Tell me your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Morris describes the tape in detail. At this time, Stokely is eight months pregnant. Gunderson is the one asking the questions and constantly interrupting her. 
But then she is allowed to actually speak. And he asks, can you tell us why you've changed your mind through these last 12 years so many times? And she says, quote, yes, sir. Because at the time of the murders, I was involved with the satanic cult. Since then, I have been contacted. I'm now pregnant. Anyone who knows anything about witchcraft knows that the firstborn child can be sacrificed and will be. I have been threatened. Threats have been made on me, my family, and everyone else. This at least plays into Gunderson's theory that she was involved in a satanic cult. Here are a few details. Most we know, but again in Stokely's own words. The men that she was with were trying to get McDonald to telephone someone to try to get some prescription drugs. They realized that he was calling the MPs and they forced him back to the couch. And that was when they started to beat him. And Stokely describes the scene almost as if in a dream, floating in between rooms. One minute she's watching McDonald get beat up. Next thing she's watching Colette struggle with other members of the group she's with. And she just keeps saying, let's leave them alone or leave them alone. And at some point she said that the phone rang and she was pretty much high on whatever drug cocktail she was on and answered it. She recalled giggling and hanging up the phone. That's a detail we haven't heard before. No, that was new. Yeah. Now, there is an affidavit floating around from August 17, 1979, where a man named Jimmy Fryer provided the FBI with an interesting tidbit of information. Fryer was trying to reach a different Dr. McDonald. This first name was Richard. Fryer called the number that he had been given from the switchboard, and he said that a woman answered the phone, and he said the woman started laughing and hung up. Hmm. Now, why this call could be corroborated, the phone call she said McDonald made beforehand isn't. And McDonald certainly never said anything about it. Hmm. Hmm. Now, Joe Warshaba, the 60 Minutes producer, starts asking questions. The story that Stokely gave about what she did after the murders matched what William Posey's description of events that he described in the Article 32 hearing, You'll recall he's the neighbor who saw her pulling up to her apartment in the Blue Mustang about 4 or 4.30 in the morning. Gunderson next turns to Colette's jewelry box. McDonald had claimed that two rings were missing, and she claimed to know the location of the box, even gave great detail about where it was located in the house or on the high dresser in the master bedroom. Then, of course, the broken hobby horse. She knew the spring was broken and, quote, it was never mentioned again until 1979 at the trial in Raleigh, end quote. Okay, so if you go back and you read through the pieces of the transcript from the interview, Stokely is extremely detailed. Her memory seems to be very clear. What about all those drugs that had turned her brain into a potato into mush? I find it very highly suspect that they refuse to let her go up on the stand, given how many times she's confessed and all of the detail that she was actually able to recite. Yeah, I agree. It's very odd to me. Remember the time I thought they were lovers or something like that? Yeah. Because I hadn't finished reading anything yet. What's going on here? It wasn't. Don't even buy that. Yeah. Forget I ever said it. Yeah. But the whole point of the interview was for the concern of her unborn child. And a few months later, on January 14th, 1983, just a couple weeks after her son was born, Helena Stokely was found dead inside her apartment with the baby laying beside her. Now, the baby was fine, was alive, maybe a little bit dehydrated, and while Prince Beasley suspected foul play, 
The autopsy showed that Stokely had died from a combination of pneumonia and liver disease. You'd think this would be the end of her, but nope. More on her later, of course. Mm-hmm. However, after all of this, Beasley decided it was time to leave the McDonald case behind. He had been always protective of Stokely and used her as an informant, so he, he did care about her. And most likely because of her death and the way that Ted Gunderson had treated her, Beasley had actually gotten it into his mind that McDonald was somehow guilty. So here we have another supporter who bites the dust. Well, they come, they go. They do. Jumping on and off the wagon yep. sometimes. So we have physical evidence that was compromised from the literal moments after the crime occurred. And now we have Ted Gunderson, who single-handedly degraded the value of any testimony given by Stokely and any other witnesses, but making this a horse and pony show and claiming conspiracy. So Gunderson was ultimately fired from the defense team, and Morris poses the question, was it too late? It might have been. I think he did more damage yeah. than any any assistance he might have tried anyway to give. And guys, we are now back to the future, 1983. This is the same year that Joe McGinnis's book, Fatal Vision, is published. All of a sudden, literally hundreds of documents are released to the defense team that no one had a damn clue about. Hmm. A decent portion of them concerned the physical evidence that had been collected by CID and the FBI at the murder scene. Now, Brian O'Neill hires Ray Shedlick, a 20-plus-year veteran of the New York Police Department, to help sort through all the FOIA paperwork, that's the Freedom of Information Act, and Ray is assisted by his daughter, Ellen Danley, and it's Ellen who found the buried evidence, really buried treasure, Mm -hmm. that she's going to refer to as a bombshell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Now, putting together a timeline, they noticed some discrepancies, things that just didn't smell right. And in a conversation that Morris has with Danley, she talks about Exhibit Q89, some black wool fibers in addition to some purple fibers that were found. These black wool fibers are found in Colette's mouth, on a club, on her pajama top. Now, recall the description McDonald gave of the woman who invaded his home. She's wearing a black outfit. Is this where the fibers came from? Then there's exhibit E323. 322 to 24 inch long blonde synthetic fibers called Saran. They were found in a hairbrush at the McDonald home, and the government said they came from a doll. Now, both of these were unsourced to anything in the home. Hmm. Now, throw back quickly to closing statements on August 28, 1979. Blackburn was summing up to the jury about purple fibers, ones that had matched McDonald's pajama top. Purple fibers, not black. Mm-hmm. Distinction. Two kinds had been found on the club, purple cotton and black wool. And while there was an explanation for the purple fibers, none were made for the black. And this was just accepted. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, officially, CID Exhibit E-232 was the blonde synthetic wig hair, 22 inches in length, found in a clear-handled brush that belonged to Colette McDonald. The presence of this fiber alone should have backed up McDonald's claim that a woman in a blonde wig was present in the home that night his family was murdered. However, the prosecution chose to say that the fiber came from a doll. 
not to mention that the presence of these fibers were unknown to the defense before the 1979 trial. Yep, this was never brought up during the Article 32 hearing. Travesty. Well, as you can imagine, we're about to have a field day. Bring Mm -hmm. on the doll experts. I don't like dolls. I liked Barbie. I had Barbies, but I was more into, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Funny tale. I did just one, just one, like, six-month stretch of Barbies, and that was it for me. But no American Girl dolls or anything like that. No. I'm waiting for the pandemic American Girl doll. We'll have a bottle of hand sanitizer, some gloves, (laughs) and a mask. Maybe some pills just to deal with everything else. I don't know if that's appropriate for a small child, though. Doesn't anything go at this point in pandemic? Yeah. It's got to end. It's coming. Guys, it's coming. It's so close. All right. So on December 5th, 1990, FBI agents Malone and Madden, along with the U.S. attorney Eric Evenson, interviewed two doll experts from the Mattel toy company, Judith Skizas and Mellis Phillips. Both were adamant in saying that their company had never made a doll with saran hair fibers that were as long as the one that they had, the, again, 22 to 24 inches in length. Nor did they know of any other company that was using saran to make dolls' hair in the late 60s and early 70s. Skizzis recalled telling the agents that while their theory was possible, it was not probable. This was due to how the fibers are inserted into the head of the doll. If the fibers were that long, it would be extremely difficult to pull out an intact fiber. The particular doll that they were looking for was a blonde-haired ballerina doll, roughly 24 inches tall. And I believe that was one of the McDonald's girls' dolls, which is why they focused on this doll. Mm -hmm. And Skins knew it. She was called Dancerina and was sold by Mattel in 1969. But her hair was made of nylon, and the fibers weren't longer than 18 inches. And Judith was, again, insistent. There was no doll made with hair fibers that long. It didn't come from a doll. Nope, not a doll. In 1998, jumping again, 1998. Here we go, in decades. Yep. (laughs) The Fourth Circuit Court stated that while this wig supported the fact that fibers came from a wig, It unfortunately couldn't prove or disprove McDonald's innocence. Unfortunately, Stokely had destroyed her wig, and there was nothing to compare the fiber with. However, despite all this, Morris makes a very important point. Quote, The government investigators may have believed that the saran was not used to make wigs and that the 24-inch fibers came from a doll, but if so... Why did they mischaracterize the evidence that they had obtained from the doll experts? Indeed, the wig fiber evidence might never speak to Stokely's presence at the crime scene, but it did speak to the government's willingness to ignore information favorable to the defense. Yeah, they ignored a lot. Sure did. Morris shifts gears after we exhaust all possible bits from the doll experts. I think it goes on for a, a decent amount of the chapter. There's a lot of interesting evidence about dolls, if you guys do read this book. But despite Stokely now being deceased, Ray Shedlick turns his focus to her accomplices. This man's encyclopedic knowledge of this case is absolutely incredible and was recorded on videotape over a five-hour period. Stokely had named over a dozen people, but three names kept popping up. Greg Mitchell, Dwight Smith, and Shelby Don Harris. 
Were these the three others with her in the house at the time of the murders? It would certainly fit McDonald's version of events, if so. Shedlick starts with Greg Mitchell. This is Stokely's ex-boyfriend. Here we have another confession, one not from Stokely this time. Oh my god. Amazing. (laughs) So Shedlick interviewed a woman named Ann Kennedy, who was a volunteer at a Christian halfway house called the Manor House in Fayetteville. And in 1971, she recalled a young man named Dave being at the house, a story which can actually be corroborated by two other volunteers. And around the time that Dave showed up, there was a prayer meeting where people were confessing to their crimes. Now, Dave became very emotional. He literally went from zero to 100, confessing to using drugs and then all the way to murder. Mm-hmm. Not surprisingly, the next day, Dave was gone. I guess that's what happens when you confess to murder in front of a group of people you don't know. Um, but that same day, the three volunteers went to check the farmhouse on the property to look for him. And when they pulled up, they saw a young man run out of the back of the house with another person in tow. And going into the house, they found, written on the wall in red, I don't know if it was paint or not. They, they never got to test it, I don't think. But written across the wall in red was written, I killed McDonald's wife and children. Now, a few years later, the farmhouse was destroyed. No photos had ever been taken. And needless to say, Shedley confirms that the witnesses were shown 25 photos, and each volunteer identified whom they knew as Dave as Greg Mitchell. Dun, dun. Mm -hmm. Dun, dun. So, Greg Mitchell. All right, next, Morris brings up Dwight Smith. Shedlick didn't speak about him at length, and that was most likely due to the fact that he just flat out refused to be interviewed. Finally, Shelby Don Harris was looked into, and Shedlick contacted Harris's family and invited them to discuss the case. At first, Harris denied knowing anyone, Stokely Mitchell included, but finally he warmed up, and Shedlick described him as being extremely nervous. He said, if I had a million dollars, I would tell you the whole story. And then Harris just disappeared. What a tease. Someone just give him the million dollars at this point. Seriously. Let's find the money. Just give it to him. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, despite being named repeatedly, two out of the three really didn't lead anywhere. Despite the lengthy video that Shedley creates, the courts are not interested in more Stokely material. And instead, it looked like they were actively trying to avoid it. But like Stokely, Greg Mitchell couldn't help himself, and he keeps <laughs> confessing. <laughs> it's, it's a joke at this point. Like, how many times do you have to say, I did something that nobody believes you? Yeah. A friend of his, Norma Lane, spoke to Mitchell on his deathbed in 1982, and he stated that he was guilty of a crime that happened a long time ago back at Fort Bragg. He never came forward as he was afraid to be prosecuted. She had called the FBI, who never returned the call, but ultimately it was Ray Shedlick who received the story from Norma. McDonald's defense team filed a motion for a new trial in 1984, which was based on the new evidence that seemed to affirm Stokely's claims and also introducing Greg Mitchell's confession into evidence. It once again came down to our friend Judge Dupree. Sarcasm. Yeah. Um, Can you guess what happened next? Yep, nothing. Nothing at all. None of this changed his mind. And five years later, in 1989, 
Norma Lane saw her statement as it was written by the FBI. Now, she had never been asked to verify it, and they essentially had put words into her mouth. That what Mitchell had said and how she connected the dots was, quote, purely an assumption on her part, quote. It was the FBI's word, not hers, and nothing was ever done to correct it. Yeah. I'm still really uncomfortable with all of this. Mm-hmm. It's almost like hysteria. Yeah. They were calling a woman hysterical. How many times has that happened? Oh, yeah. Well, guys, we are moving now into book five of A Wilderness of Error, and we are getting there. Once again, we're summarizing as much as possible, but there is so much detail here. It's really crazy. All right. Like we said, there is this Encyclopedia Britannica of the McDonald case in this book, and you're you're going to know as much as we can tell you and scram into this episode. Um, <laughs> when McDonald is sentenced to life in prison on August 30th, 1979, he starts speaking with Joe McGinnis in earnest, which would ultimately result in Fatal Vision being published in 1983. Adapted into a miniseries, which airs on November 18th and 19th, 1984, and then is followed by two civil suits, one filed by Jeffrey McDonald against Joe McGinnis for fraud, and that's in August 31st, 1984, and the other filed by Freddie and Mildred Kassab against Jeff McDonald to obtain the money that was paid to him by McGinnis. Little Rob Robin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The back and forth of McDonald and McGinnis would become central to a written article by Janet Malcolm in The New Yorker, published in 1989, and was later published in her book, The Journalist and the Murderer. Now, one of the most curious things to consider when we reviewed this, did McGinnis ever believe in McDonald's innocence? And if he did, at what point did he flip, thinking now that Jeff was guilty? It happened at some point. Yep. Well, based on the first letter that McGinnis wrote to McDonald, he writes, quote, Total strangers can recognize within five minutes that you did not receive a fair trial, end quote. So, not. I believe you're guilty, but you definitely didn't receive a fair trial, regardless. But then in his second letter, back to McDonald, he solidifies on paper that he does believe in Jeff's innocence and that the book that they are writing together will prove that. Okay. So, however, as the correspondence continues, we are going to see a change. Joe and Freddie Kassab, McDonald's father-in-law, are also talking, and Kassab is going to write his own book, and one that's going to show that McDonald is guilty, 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 guilty. So now we're going to have competing books going out at roughly the same time. Well, that's not good. Oh, no. No, no. So, now, regardless, McGinnis does make one point clear. He needs McDonald's help to make sure the other books about the trial don't come out before McGinnis's book. So, finally, in January 1980, McGinnis tells Jeff that it's time to tell all the dirty details. He wants to hear about Jeff's life in his own words, every minute detail. Read the book if you want to hear it all. Yeah. <laughs> Our summary and brief starts now. A tape recorder made its way to McDonald in his prison cell, and responding to McGinnis's prompting, he began speaking to it, laying out his whole life story. And Morris relates that the first tapes aren't anything special. Nothing life-altering, nothing life-changing stands out at all. Just like the trial transcripts, the audio logs are hundreds of pages long. 
McDonald reminisces about his life with Colette from the day they met up until their last, their hopes, their dreams. And remember, they wanted a farm near the water? Like, that was their goal. That's what they wanted. Yeah. These tapes make Jeffrey McDonald seem human, almost likable, relatable. If McGinnis was trying to ferret out a killer or catch a confession on tape, even all the way into tape 15, he was extremely disappointed. There was none of that happening. Nope. And not long after McDonald started sending his recorded tapes, McGinnis began the double cross. He once again chatted up Freddie Kassab to let him know that they shared common goals, that their interests were the same. There was no need for Kassab to write a separate book. He assured Kassab of two things. One, McGinnis was guaranteed exclusive access to McDonald's. And two, he was free to write the type of book that he wanted, free to make his own conclusions. However, he wasn't comfortable with McDonald being the one to paint the big picture of the murdered Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen, especially if he was the murderer. McGinnis wrote, I am not attempting in any way to double-cross or betray Jeffrey McDonald. And Morris was quick to retort, quote, It's the kind of sentence written by someone who intends to do just that. <laughs> yeah, well. Yes. <laughs> Morris is a perceptive guy. Yes, he is. Morris found a quote from a newspaper article from the San Francisco Examiner and Chronicle, written on October 12, 1980. McGinnis said, again, quote, Was McDonald guilty? I can't talk about what I think. At the end of the book, the reader can draw a reasonable conclusion. I spend a great deal of time with both sides, and I got full cooperation. But this is so sad and horrible, I'll be glad when it's over. It's affected my dream life, and not for the better. I didn't realize I'd become so emotionally involved, end quote. He needs some lavender pillow spray. <laughs> well, he's clearly a victim of his own book writing. Mm, yes. Oh, the poor guy. Another victim of Jeffrey McDonald. Yep. You know, again, we ask, when did McGinnis change his mind? Or was it already made up? All right, regardless, it was his story, and he's going to turn McDonald into a monster. Yep. Now, there's some evidence that McGinnis emphasized some parts of the book to make McDonald look even more guilty. His editor, Phyllis Gran, wrote to him saying, quote, Please make sure that it is clear that Jeff is convicted because he's truly guilty and not because he has a bad lawyer, end quote. But it seems that anything goes in McGinnis's book. The pajama top demonstration from the trial is an item of ridicule in McGinnis's correspondence with McDonald, but is praised in the book, from hocus-pocus to very convincing evidence. Even the movie, very convincing evidence. The damn holes didn't even match up. Peace. I mean, you go back to what Strombaugh said. Well, it could have been hole 17 and hole 3, or maybe it was hole 6 Arms or Arms could have been up, or... could have been down, oh. defensive, attacking. Yeah. On December 14, 1982, the final manuscript was complete, and it was here that MacDonald became extremely distressed. He wanted a copy of the book, begged for it on February 9, 1983, in a letter to Joe McGinnis. McGinnis would not budge, and MacDonald wouldn't get a copy of it before it hit the shelves. Now, don't get too upset out there. We're going to come back to this point here shortly. But on June 1st, 1983, Jeffrey McDonald was waylaid when Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes came to visit him in prison down in Bastrop, Texas. He thought he was going to be interviewed about new evidence that had been uncovered by his attorneys. That was not the case. 
He was being further vilified on camera due to this book that cast him as a murderer without remorse. Now, millions of people would believe he was the perpetrator of these heinous crimes. And to his shock, he also learned that day that McGinnis had betrayed him. And here's a new one for you. The 60 Minutes interview was going to be more about his motivation. So the why behind the murders. The elusive why. We've all been waiting. What is it? Diet pills. What? Diet pills. Colette took his diet pills? No, he was <laughs> taking diet pills. Uh, yes, that's the motivation. That's yes. the why. Yes, yes. I, I, I hate to joke about it, but go ahead, Tucker. <laughs> so they need, they need to hear this. I know. I know. McGinnis never asked McDonald about these pills. This is, quite frankly, the first time that we actually hear about the pills. But McGinnis had already decided that McDonald was guilty, and now here was his proof. McDonald's family was killed due to an amphetamine-fueled rage brought on by diet pills. While McGinnis is still writing Fatal Vision, he asked McDonald if he could use his condo in Huntington Beach, California. And while he was there, he found some files in the bottom of the box. And in the files were letters to McDonald's defense attorneys. Saying that he discovered the files is a lie. McGinnis knew about the diet pills during the trial. He had actually discussed them with McDonald's lawyers. And in fact, the diet pills were known since the Article 32 hearing. And McDonald was taking these for a little weight loss here and there, similar to why I would take diet pills. Yet based on McGinnis's calculation, the three to five pills of Escatrol a day, the, the pills in question, Escatrol, turned into a chronic amphetamine psychosis. And then poor Colette, who was learning about psychology in our coursework, attempted to explain to McDonald his own behaviors to himself, and he snapped. And Morris writes the equation, misogyny plus narcissism plus diet pills equals a triple homicide. I feel like that's math I can do, though. Even if it's ridiculous, like the words and that taking place of numbers, that's easy math to me. It's just ridiculous. ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Yeah, it is just ridiculous. So Morris speaks with UCLA lawyer psychologist Rex Bieber about stimulants and psychopathy. And Bieber says that stimulants don't cause people to kill on their own. Mm-hmm. All right. The loss of impulse control has to be there in order for you to act out an impulse you already have. So... McDonald didn't have an issue controlling himself as far as anyone knew. He was very controlling. Mm-hmm. All right. And He's a surgeon for crying out loud. Right. And he was in the army. The army doesn't like that impulsive thing. No. Like, I'm going to get out of line right now. They don't. It doesn't work. You I know? know a lot of doctors. They're all very strict. Right. Uh, in fact, amphetamine abuse is common among doctors, especially those in emergency departments. And in fact, McDonald took stimulants really doesn't explain anything because stimulants don't cause homicide, period. I mean, how else are you going to make it through a 24-hour shift? Because emergency room doctors are out there slaughtering people left and right. Yeah, and then they're taking diet pills. Yeah. All right. So after this, McDonald's files a lawsuit against Joe McGinnis on August 31st, 1984. And in the lawsuit, McDonald's claims fraud, breach of contract, breach of the covenant of good faith and fair dealings. However, during the 1979 trial, Morris explains that, quote, McDonald had signed a contract with McGinnis granting McGinnis exclusive rights to his life story 
and releasing him from any and all claims, demands, cause of action that I may hereafter have against you, whether from libel, violation of rights of privacy, or anything else, quote. It was Bernie Siegel, McDonald's former lawyer, who had added the clause in their contract, quote, provided that the essential integrity of my life story is maintained. At least he did something right. Yes, he did. (laughs) In this case. And Morris is right when he says it's a bit weird because integrity becomes synonymous with the truth. But that right there is exactly why McDonald never got a copy of his book. Yeah. Because he knew it was a breach. He knew in advance. My opinion, but he knew in advance. Exactly. There's a lot of pages of transcript, just as there always is with this case. And a few things stand out. McDonald's guilt or innocence. That McGinnis lied to McDonald and the claim that McGinnis stretched the truth. These were the main reasons for the suit. Morris logically explains that an innocent man doesn't make for a best-selling book. Well, we wouldn't be here if someone was really innocent or something really not messed up happened. Right. Yeah. McDonald can believe to be guilty, not just because of the evidence, but because of the way he acts. He doesn't present himself the way that a grieving father or a grieving husband would. And since everyone assumed McDonald to be guilty, well, there it was. And during the civil suit, we find that it was fairly clear that McGinnis was always flip-flopping on McDonald, whether he was innocent or guilty. McGinnis was just playing the game, and the resulting television series that came about from the book Fatal Vision, the book that McGinnis wrote, solidified McDonald's guilt for millions of Americans. In the book or TV series, we see a preserved crime scene. We know better. It was anything but. Stokely was portrayed as stupid and mean, not anything like she was in real life. John Gay, the creator of the series, always said he wanted to remain true to the story, but no one ever questioned that the book may not be the truth. And Morris wrote, quote, The correspondence between McGinnis and McDonald shows a writer misleading his subject, but the book shows a writer misleading the public about the facts of this case. End quote. Now it really begs the question, if no one sees all sides, and how would we know something is not quite right? I saw the TV series, mm-hmm. thought he was guilty as hell, read the book, thought he was guilty as hell, started into this book, he's guilty as hell, why are we doing this? And because now here we are. And here we <laughs> and are. you don't even know what to do with yourself. I'm just so, I, oh boy. So, it's another disappointing outcome to a trial surrounding Jeffrey McDonald. It ends in a hung jury where McDonald agreed to $325,000 as a settlement from McGinnis. Then guess what? The Kassabs turned around and sued McDonald for part of that. They didn't want him to get jack shit for anything having to do with their daughter's death. So it only produced another settlement where McDonald receives $48,000 that he could spend on his defense. What went wrong with McGinnis? So Morris comes back to it again and again. Both were roughly the same age. They were from similar backgrounds. They both wanted to be successful. One is an author. The other is a prestigious surgeon. They're both married and had committed adultery, even fathered two children apiece, daughters. But Morris writes that, quote unquote, here's the terrible irony. There is no evidence, despite McGinnis's desperate efforts to find it, to suggest that Jeffrey McDonald had terrible dreams of maiming and destruction of my daughters. 
and there is evidence that Joe McGinnis did. He wrote about them in diaries and published them in 1976. McGinnis and McDonald, a friendship that never truly was. Well, 25 years after the trial, a retired federal marshal named Jimmy Britt came forward to offer some surprising information. Whether or not it's a bombshell, we'll leave that up to you. But he confirmed that the prosecution wanted to keep Helena Stokely silent. It was because of good old boy Judge Franklin Dupree that he had never come forward. Does that really tell us anything new about Judge Dupree? We do a whole episode on that, man. Barely touch on him here. Read the book, you'll find out more. Maybe you'll have a little special something from us later on. But no, it doesn't tell us anything new. It just confirms that Stokely was still claiming to be at the crime scene. But Britt said that he had brought her to James Blackburn's office to be interviewed. And he stated that Blackburn told Stokely, quote, If you testify before the jury as to what you have told me or said to me in this office, I will indict you for murder. Oh. End quote. Oh. Now, we know this is another confession because that's what she does. But now, if that was to be believed, that would mean that Blackburn had lied, and that alone would be enough to get McDonald's conviction overturned. So, who do you believe, Blackburn or Britt? Well, I'm on the know, so I can't say right now. (laughs) I kind of know what's going on here. All right. According to Britt... Her story was turned completely upside down. Morris tells us that Blackburn effectively eliminates Stokely as a witness, which had the effect of neutralizing the six or seven other witnesses who had corroborated her story. You know, recall, she says, I can't remember anything from that night, marshmallow potato brain, and no story, no corroboration. Now, Blackburn denies ever having to met with Britt or Stokely alone, only with two or three other Justice Department lawyers. Enter Helena Stokely's lawyer, Jerry Leonard. Huh? Yeah. Surprise. Guess what? All this time, Helena Stokely has had a lawyer. Since when? Because what? Like, where did she come from? That was new. Well, since 1979. I mean, all the way back then. Yes. So Morris goes to find this Jerry Leonard, who is still unfortunately bound by attorney-client privilege. Yes, even after she is cast. I know. It lasts beyond the grave, darn it. So, the two of them, Jerry and Helena Stokely, were actually at the courthouse for a number of days until it was decided whether or not she would be testifying. And we know she does take the stand without the jury present, testifies she can't recall anything. Jerry was able to explain to Morris that his job was to keep Helena isolated and to protect her. With her picked up on a warrant for her arrest, and now in custody, her lawyer's main job was to keep her from incriminating herself. And while decades had passed, it is Jerry's recollection that the McDonald lawyers were the ones who wanted Helena arrested. Well, that fits. I mean, if you recall, the defense had been trying to find her, wanted to call her as a witness, and having her arrested and in custody would certainly be a way to know where she was so she could be called as a witness. That makes perfect sense. That's absolutely illogical. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Unlike diet pills. Yes. Yeah. So Morris and Leonard also discussed the judge's decision not to allow Helena's testimony before the jury. Leonard saw no inability to focus in on her, nor any effect of the use of drugs that impacted her cognitive ability negatively. He said, she was fine as far as I was concerned. And to confirm what Jerry told him, Morris met up with the chaperone, Kay Reibold, 
a law clerk, who basically babysat Helena during the remainder of the trial. Now, Kate and Helena established a rapport over the three days at the Journey's End Motel, engaged in quite a few conversations. In such a discussion about a disabled children's center in Raleigh, Helena hung her head, reflecting quietly, and she said, quote, I still remember Kristen's face. Her face seems familiar to me, end quote. And while repeating this several more times, Helena admitted to Kay that she remembered Dr. McDonald on the couch. All in all, Kay's impression was that her mind was lucid, but that she'd undergone some horrendous experiences. We have yet another I was there statement from Helena, and another person confirming that Helena is a fairly stable person in her recollection. That is three more confessions in 1979, Jimmy Britt, Jerry Leonard, and Kay Rival. There's also a fourth. Oh, no. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Lynn Markstein, a patient in the emergency room in Raleigh, where Helena was taken by Wendy Rowther after a fight she had with her boyfriend, Ernie Davis. Once again, Helena begins talking about how she was in the McDonald house during the murders, and she remembers a bloody child. Lynn Markstein told Morris that Helena said she was standing over the crib, looking at the child who was covered in blood. And I believe she said that the child's throat was cut, but I'm not sure. She did say something about a lot of blood. And can you imagine someone like me doing that to those babies? All right. This stuck with me and Tara. It's vivid. It is. It's terrible. But I went and uh, I don't recommend it, but I went and I looked at the crime scene photos. Terrible. Uh, I do not recommend it. But neither Kimberly nor Kristen was in a crib the night they died. They were in beds. They were not in cribs. That's a fact. Make a note, murder bookies. It was after the hotel, the fight with Ernie Davis, the visit to the hospital, waiting in the witness room at the courthouse, and Helena is testifying to Judge Dupree that she remembers nothing because she's on drugs. Is this because she was threatened with arrest for murder if she did? Is that why Judge Dupree ruled Stokely's confessions as clearly untrustworthy as any statements I have ever seen? But now we have a fuller version of what may have actually happened during that trial. Something else is really weird, too. Morris asks, why wasn't Helena Stokely given an attorney when she arrived August 15th? Why wait until August 20th? Now, surely it seems that an arrested material witness, possible suspect, should have a lawyer. So Morris has a theory about all this that Helena does exactly as the prosecution wants. The I know nothing, pulling a Sergeant Schultz. If you get that reference, I absolutely love you. She doesn't love me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But because of this, this cascade is unleashed. The six cooperating hearsay witnesses are rejected by Judge Dupree. It's a deliberate thing that happens that unleashes and eliminates all of that testimony. But what happens now if Helena changes her mind as she usually does and starts confessing again and gets cozy with the defense? Ooh. Uh, here comes Jerry Leonard again, mm-hmm. whose job it is to keep her from incriminating herself. Exactly. To ensure she does not confess again, period. There would be no defense positive Helena. Confessing during the remainder of the trial, convenient for the prosecution, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that is Errol Morris's theory. Yeah. 
So Jimmy Britt's affidavit was filed in 2005, and he would pass away from congestive heart failure in October of 2008. Now, this formulated the basis for McDonald's next appeal, that Stokely's testimony had been coerced, and if she had not been pressured by the prosecution, there would have been a different outcome to the trial. The government would argue that the defense had refreshed Helena's memory by showing her photos of the hobby horse the day before she testified, etc., etc. A photo of the hobby horse had appeared in the Fayetteville Observer in the days after the murders. That is undisputed. Did Helena see the newspaper account and see the Rocky Horse photo? We don't know, and neither did she. But there's a catch. You cannot tell the hobby horse is broken, and she consistently refers to a broken hobby horse. Yeah, I looked at that photo, searched through the newspapers and found it. You can absolutely not tell if that hobby horse is broken or not. It's just... It's black and white, and it's hard to tell. And all the other details, the uh, high, high dresser, low dresser, yeah. jewelry box. Mm-hmm. So where did Helena get the information about the broken hobby horse? William Posey, Helena's next-door neighbor, interviewed back in 1970, described running into Helena just after the murders. He asked her if she was involved, and she replied she was on drugs that night, but didn't think she was capable of killing anybody. Maybe she had a candle, though? And maybe some guy had ridden the hobby horse and broke it? William said sometimes she talked like she could really have been there and been present. Obviously, Morris contacted William Posey, who'd suffered a serious stroke recently. His brother, Rock, would aid in their communication. Now, William explained that Helena knew about the broken bolt before any of this was in the newspapers. That was why he'd gone back to the MPs to report it. And to this day, William Posey believes that Helena Stokely was there the night of the murders. And if you recall, the MPs were focused on coffee tables and plant pots. Yep, they were. A friend of the McDonald's family explains that the rocking horse was broken before the intruders arrived at the house. McDonald had moaned to a family friend, Helen Fell, quote-unquote, now he'd have to listen to Mildred that she probably bought it at a garage sale, you know, meaning that the hobby horse was well used and then easily broken. So, yes, Helena knew the rocking horse was broken, but the assailant hadn't broken it, as Helena claimed. So one step forward, one step back. But the fact that it was broken. Oh, you can't get around that one. She she knew that. <sighs> All right, back to Jimmy Britz in uh, the 2005 appeal. The appellate judge, James Fox, both Judge Dupree's successor and his friend. Fox's 2005 decision, he ruled that it didn't matter even if Britt was telling the truth. McDonald had not demonstrated that the Britt affidavit as a whole could establish a clear and convincing evidence, but that for constitutional error, no reasonable fact finder would have found McDonald guilty of the murders of his wife and daughters. So another I was there, appeal rejected. In writing the book about the subject, this involved and complex, one realizes the number of interviews conducted will be best. And sometimes, to find the ending, you have to go back to the beginning. The first MP on the scene that February 17, 1970, was Ken Micah, who also saw a woman in a floppy hat en route to the McDonald home on Castle Drive. And what he told Eric Morris wasn't a bombshell. It was a nuclear blast. 
But is it a theoretical blast or an actual blast? It really matters. In complaining about how he was treated while being interviewed for a news program that Ken did with Stone Phillips, Micah told Morris that the woman he'd seen in the floppy hat was not Helena Stokely. Yeah. Holy shit. Helena Stokely was not the woman in the floppy hat, wig and boots that MP Micah saw the night of the murders. I was stunned. Holy shit. I was flabbergasted. <laughs> After all this time, this is the first time you bring this up. Anywho, as Ken was actually familiar with Stokely prior to all this, he knew this wasn't her. So 50 years, and it wasn't her. Where had he been? We could have spared all of you so much time. So much time. I'm not actually... (laughs) What the hell? Micah? But yes. (sighs) Micah went on to share that he'd been told the woman he saw, one was Helena, two was a man, three was an officer's wife who was fooling around with an enlisted man, which is why she never came forward, because that's a big no-no. And four, a CID told them that they knew who the mystery woman was. So through all of this, Ken Micah knew Helena Stokely, and it wasn't her. He just knew it wasn't her. And he said to Morris, I knew what she looked like, and I knew what the woman that I saw that night looked like. And they weren't even close. I only got a quick glimpse of the woman on the corner, but it wasn't Helena Stokely. This is a game changer. All right, I got to catch my breath a minute here. All right, nowhere else in 50 years is Ken Mike on the record saying it is not Helene Stokely. All right, when asked why he's never mentioned this before, he said, well, he was told not to. 50 years, he was told not to. Yeah. Well, okay, in the Army, you're taught, you know, follow orders, and that's that's legit. That's fair. But what Morris does learn is that it was Ken Micah who told Bernie Siegel about the woman in the floppy hat and the boots that he saw en route to the crime scene that February in the first place. So I have no idea what to think about this one. It either completely flips 50 years of theories and deep diving, or it's a total memory fail and a big red herring. I, I, but, uh, what the, I don't know what to make of that. I think we have to consider every that we know about this case, just all the backdoor double dealings and the misuse of any evidence and, like, throwing out confessions, he could easily say that, oh, yeah, it wasn't her. But even from the get-go, he says, I saw a glimpse of a woman in the rain as I was driving past a corner in the dark of night. Like, I don't think I'd be able to pick you out on a street if I didn't know you were there. Driving past you at night, going who knows how fast to a crime scene. It's 50 years of variables affecting memory as well. Yeah. Just because we haven't had more interesting factors to start impacting this, the head honcho prosecutor Blackburn, so he's going to move on to become a U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina, and then he retires and he becomes a partner at a very well-respected law firm. Only to be disbarred and he goes to prison. Huh. Yeah, where he winds up speaking to Errol Morris by phone. You cannot make this stuff no. up, seriously, people. You really can't. All right, so when asked if there was any connection between Blackbird's flameout, as he called it, and his conduct prosecuting the McDonald case, he says no. He says, I know the McDonald tries to put the two together to some degree. 
if you're a scumbag in one, you're a scumbag in the other kind of thing, and tries to tie the two together. I don't think it holds a great deal of water, but that's my own personal opinion. Well, that's awfully generous. He gives himself that. When asked about Jimmy Britt's claim, Blackburn intimidated, you know, Helena Stokely. James Blackburn replied, it never happened, I can tell you. He's passed away, and I was there. And nobody else who writes about this knows. But I was there, and so I can tell you that that's not so. Uh, okay. So he yeah. firm denial there. Yeah. Okay. So, Jill, when you're gone, I'll just dispute everything you ever said to me. Okay. Because you're no longer here. Because you would know. And yeah. No yeah I, was I was here. Yeah. So... In case you're wondering, because I'm busy as hell, so I had to look this up. Yes, uh, <laughs> Blackburn pleads guilty to 12 counts of forgery, fraud, and embezzlement of $234,054 from his law firm. That was specific. But not $55, $54. Another of Jeffrey McDonald's attorneys, Wade Smith, got Blackburn's 110-year sentence reduced to Three years. Three years. Hello, Wade. Where were you in Jeffrey McDonald's case? Yeah. 110 down to three years. Most of that is release work, and he's doing, like, law office work by day, prison by night type thing. And he's paroled after three months. Three months. Jeff didn't get that. So you have to read A Wilderness of Error to get the full picture. Always read a book. I mean, we keep saying that, but it's truly legit. Wade did play a part, and it almost seems so small considering how many, but when we get to a little bit more through the end here, you'll see why it's very significant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A last point of contention is McDonald's injuries. So after looking at them, we've heard he was everything from lightly wounded to nearly died, depending on whether someone thinks he's guilty or innocent. It's funny how the language changes. Or depending on who's telling the story, you know, I cut my finger and it's like, oh my God, I almost chopped my finger off. I chopped my finger off and I had to reattach it. (laughs) Put it in the, put it on ice. Yep. Yep. Reattached it myself too. Yeah. But here we are, we're only concerned with the facts, as you guys know. And what the reports from the hospital actually said seems like an no-brainer. Starting at the top, Jeff McDonald's had included a swollen, discolored, scraped, blunt trauma to the left forehead and smaller bruise on the right. On the left posterior portion of his head, there was another contusion, with these likely explaining how he was knocked unconscious. He also had a large bruise on his upper left arm and shoulder. There was a knife wound that entered one place and exited another, was found in his left bicep, plus several puncture wounds. There were also cuts on his left hand and fingers, cutting into the web of his pointer finger and thumb. Now, on his chest, there were four to five punctures above his heart. These did not require stitches. And on the right side of his chest, there was a three-fourths of an inch wide wound that slid down between the ribs, collapsing his right lung, making it difficult to breathe. A three-inch long, jagged cut along the upper abdomen ran perpendicular to another knife slash, forming a V. Now, there are several punch marks across the center of the stomach area as well. And Dr. Merrill Bronstein described these abdominal lacerations as gaping, so exposing the fascia of the muscle, which also required suturing or stitches. However, with the concern over the most serious chest wound, 
you know, bubbling bloody froth from this collapsed lung, the stomach wound was taped closed. Jeff had no fingernail scratch marks, according to CID reports. In an interview with attending physician Dr. Siebert Jacobson, said that his blood pressure was 120 over 70, temperature 99, and respiration rate 26. So, those are his injuries. Now, do you think they're light or heavy, murder bookies? Did he do this to himself? Now, this also got me wondering about the autopsies of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen. Would they tell us something? And surprisingly, yes. Now, out of respect for the dead, we are keeping this sparse, only what is necessary. Colette was attacked with three weapons, an ice pick, knife, and a club, all used while she was alive and in a very short amount of time. Wound patterns were to the right side of her face, indicating her attacker was left-handed. Kim was attacked with two weapons, a blunt object with a smooth surface that struck the right side of her face first, again indicating a left-handed person. The second was a knife, which inflicted wounds to the right side while she was still alive. Kristen was also injured by two weapons, an ice pick and a knife. Ice pick wounds inflicted first to her chest. She was stabbed in the back with a knife multiple times, and more ice pick wounds were made as she was dying. The autopsies were signed by William P. Heal, but evidently performed by Major George Gamble. Fact. Jeffrey McDonald is right-handed. Greg Mitchell is left-handed. Now, you would think that some of this might have been enough to prove reasonable doubt, but it does get better. Better sarcasm? Think of that. Now, I know hippies don't kill people, but going back to the point about Colette, who was attacked with three weapons while she was alive in a very short amount of time, Mm -hmm. that kind of coincides with the fact that you have Helena Stokely saying, oh, no, leave her alone, and three others attacking somebody right in front of her. That would would line up. Yeah. I don't have a law degree. I came to that conclusion. Because lawyers miss that terror. <laughs> so here where it gets funky, at the end of 1997, a request for a mitochondrial DNA testing was accepted. They were surprised it was accepted, too. Mm-hmm. It, it surprised everybody, especially mm-hmm. his defense team. 28 hair samples were submitted to the Armed Forces DNA Identification Lab, and the results were returned eight years later. Yes, you heard that. Eight years. Eight. 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 Nine were inconclusive. Thirteen were from Colette and the girls. Three from Jeffrey McDonald. And the last three were unmatched. One of the unsourced fibers, specimen 91A, was found under Kristen's fingernail. It's noted that specimen 91A was, quote, in a location that shows that during Kristen's attempts to defend herself, a hair from her attacker was lodged under her fingernail, end quote. Hmm. Again, we repeat, this was not from her father, Jeffrey McDonald. Even with advances in technology that could potentially prove that it was someone else other than McDonald, the evidence kept getting brushed to the wayside. I don't know how that's not significant. Yes. Hmm. Well, Errol Morris finally speaks directly with McDonald on August 14th, 2003. 
Now, considering how much of this case has consumed Morris, this is the first time they're actually really conversing. And um, it's nothing eye-opening. They discuss the role of the media in the case, from fatal vision to the journalist and the murderer, everything in between. The media choosing a narrative, running away with it, making out Jeff McDonald to be a monster. And for McDonald, the narrative is just the wrong one. McDonald stated one truth that's hard to swallow. Now, in retrospect, nothing anyone could have done would have won the case for me in Judge Dupree's courtroom. He and Morris can certainly agree on that, and they both agree that the defense team could have been better, most definitely could have fought harder. And now let's flash forward to 2012. 2012. Yeah. Errol Morris wrote, quote, I wrote A Wilderness of Error because I felt that there was something deeply wrong with the McDonald case. I still do. It has very little to do with my liking or disliking McDonald, who has treated me with indifference over the years. My interest, even obsession, with the case is for me a matter of principle. I believe many of the facts of the case were excluded from the trial. End quote. And we have to agree. There are so many pieces of evidence that we have reviewed throughout the last two episodes that there is certainly reasonable doubt as to whether Jeffrey McDonald was actually guilty of the crimes committed against his wife and children. Another hearing actually took place from September 17th to September 25th of 2012. And what happened might just shock you. I don't know if I can take any more shocks. So Morris was there, and here's a brief rundown. McDonald had a new attorney, one of many. His name was Gordon Widenhouse. And at the start, he went into the DNA evidence. Unfortunately, it proved nothing. Had Helena Stokely or Greg Mitchell's DNA been found in the house, that might be a different story. Which leads into the indefinite debate of whether or not McDonald's wounds were self-inflicted. Think about it. How easy is it to collapse your own lungs? I have no idea. I don't even think I would want to try that. I don't either. That's terrifying to me. Then we get to undermining Jimmy Britt, whose affidavit was received in 2005 regarding the infamous conversation with Blackburn and Stokely. You know, if you testify, I'll indict you for murder bit. Right. So, unfortunately, his initial statement and then subsequent versions that were received were different. So, in one, he picked up Stokely in Charleston before transporting her to Raleigh. In the other, it was a pickup in Greenville. Again, Britt was dead. And his widow Mary was there to back him up and corroborated his story. That whether or not it was her Charleston or Greenville, he went somewhere in South Carolina to pick her up. Yeah. Does it matter if it was Charleston or Greenville after 50 freaking years? Does it matter? Not to me. No. No. Now the question of the interview. Was Britt there or wasn't he there? Morris made the call and he spoke with an official at the U.S. Marshal Service. He was asked if it was standard protocol to stay with witnesses during interviews, and the official advised that it was. Quote, generally, I don't see why the marshal would not have been around. It just doesn't make a great deal of sense to me. Well, it would be nice to get this official's name, but unfortunately, it's off the record. And he was instructed by his superiors not to speak about the case to anyone. Meanwhile, McDonald's defense attorney was looking for any loophole to get to Jerry Leonard, Stokely's attorney, so that he could testify at trial. However, every request was outright rejected. So there's still this attorney-client privilege that's in existence, and 
There is no exception. However, the Fourth Circuit Court requested a full presentation of the evidence, and Leonard did take the stand in front of a virtually empty courtroom. And here is what Leonard did wind up saying. She, Helena Stokely, said, what would you do if I told you I was there? And I said, I'd still represent you. I need to know the truth. And she said, well, she was there and she told a story about what happened that evening. And thereafter, I told her I could not, that she should not take the witness stand and testify, that she could plead her Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate herself, and that I would help her with that. But we all know Helena Stokely was never called as a witness. If you read the book, you'll know that Wade Smith, one of McDonald's defense attorneys, was also tight-knit with Joe McGinnis and James Blackburn. Hell, there is even a photo of the three of them that Morris includes in the book of them taking a hiking trip in 1993. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were most certainly what Morris calls divided loyalties by Wade Smith. With that, McDonald was most likely screwed from the get-go. He really didn't stand a chance. Morris ends with this. Despite their inconsistencies, Jimmy Britt's affidavit did accomplish one thing. They put Stokely and her confession squarely in the spotlight. And Stokely's confession to Leonard matters. This wasn't a passing statement to a stranger. It was a detailed confession made to an officer of the court under the protection of attorney-client privilege. It gives substance to the view that Stokely was a credible, intelligent person with a guilty conscience. And had Stokely's confession been heard, Jeffrey McDonald would not have spent the last 34 years in prison. So we began this exploration with me convinced of Jeff McDonald's guilt. And while I'm still not convinced of his innocence, I am 100% sure that he did not get a fair trial. No, no, no. Now, everyone, even one charged with the most heinous crimes, deserves a fair trial. Jeffrey McDonald does, too. As of this recording, which is April 9th, 2021, Jeffrey McDonald still remains in prison for the murder of his wife, Colette, and two daughters, Kimberly and Kristen. He remarried in 2002 to a woman named Catherine after becoming pen pals. As recently as a couple of weeks ago, McDonald, now 77, has asked for a compassionate release from prison. The request came at the behest of his lawyers as McDonald looks to start kidney dialysis and only has a few more years left to live. Compassionate relief would allow McDonald to go free from prison or have his sentence altered due to a change in medical status without considering guilt or innocence. Colette's brother, Bob Stevenson, spoke out saying that McDonald should never be allowed to walk the face of the earth again. For what he did, it is unspeakable. It is unthinkable. And for Wade Smith, who was also present, he commented, quote, This case is an enduring mystery. Nobody knows who did what inside of that house. Nobody. End quote. So what do you think, murder bookies? Let us know your thoughts and theories or who you think done it. Reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or, as always, Jill and Tara at MurderShelfBookClub.com, and we'll feature some of them in our housekeeping portion of future episodes. Definitely cannot wait for our next episode, Second Cast. It's going to be powerful, disturbing, and we hope you will soon turn in.
Now, you know it's been a while, and if you haven't done it yet, get our next book and start reading. We'll be going over Lost Girls, the Unsolved American Mystery by Robert Kolker. This book is a compelling read, a journey into the lives of the victims of the unidentified Long Island serial killer, a.k.a. Lisk. Now, we don't know what we don't know, but Kolker takes an investigative deep dive into what we do know. The escort business, sex work on the internet, the stigma of prosecution, and how little the public cares when they go missing. Despite their secrets, you'll feel you know each girl or someone like her, and your heart will break for each one, and the lives shattered because of their loss. You can also watch Lost Girls on Netflix. It is really compelling viewing. So thank you for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or shoot us an email again at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. We certainly love to hear from you. And follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else (laughs) I think podcasts can be heard. Let our episodes just pop right up into your feed so you don't even have to worry about that download. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. It really, really, really does make a difference. Come on, Murder Bookies. Certainly appreciate your feedback. So until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Okay, see you soon. Bye-bye.